We are in the book of Acts again this morning. Uh, you should be used to that. Um, we'll be there for quite a while. We're in uh, the end of chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 12 today. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and get that out. I'm going to pray uh, and ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we jump in. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it is our privilege to read the words you've given to us in this book. It's a privilege, Lord, to see what you did in the lives of your people early on. Lord, and how they reacted to your grace, how they reacted to this message of Christ. And, and Lord, as we think of that, I just pray that you would empower us to respond rightly to you. Let us worship you. Let us, let us pray. Let us witness. Let us do the things that you've called us to do in the way that you've called us and empowered us to do them. God, I pray now that you would guide our time and for, for the things that we look at, I ask that you would convict and encourage our hearts where each one is needed. God, in each individual's heart here, each of these brothers and sisters who has called you Lord, who has trusted you as Savior, I pray that you would work in their life today through this text. We thank you for being present by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am in verse 12, and we'll finish the chapter today. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place of the ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. There's a question that we wrestle with uh, throughout the Bible, really. It comes to us in various parts of Scripture. Um, it, when we read things that we don't immediately understand. This question is rather simple, but it's extremely important. The question is, why is this here? 
Uh, we, we ask this question in, let's face it, in Leviticus and Numbers and uh, some parts of the, the narrative stories in the Bible. We ask this many parts in the book of Revelation and I'm asking it here at the beginning of Acts right in this text. But, but the way you ask that question is important. Okay? There's, there's two ways that I see that you can ask the question, why is this here? You, you can ask the question this way. Why is this here? With a note of contempt, as if to say, there's, there's no reason that this should be here. This has no bearing on my life. I already know that, so why is this here? Or you can ask it this way. Why is this here? With the note of assumption, a note of expectation, as if to say, God has purposes for his book. He has intentionality before the things that are written here. Luke knew what he was doing in recording some of these things. And so maybe I'm the ignorant one and I need to ask God, why? Why is this here? What am I supposed to see in this text? And that's what I'm asking today. And, and here's my best shot, that this, this passage that we just read allows us to peer into the early community of faith to see what they valued, to see how they acted, to see what guided them. And we'll see themes that surface throughout the book of Acts. In one sense, I would picture this like, like a cutaway diagram. Okay? You guys know this in, in manuals. You're working on something and they give you a cutaway. And once you see the cutaway, you say, Oh, now I understand how it works. And from there on out, if you, if you can peer into the inside, now you understand from there on out how this thing works. And so this is what I think is going on here. We're going to get an unusual shot into the early believers' lives and see what they valued and how they operated. I'm going to do this. Usually, see, I give you one overarching statement of purpose for a text. I'm not going to give you that today. Today I have six things that I see in this text. Three of them are are. Theological examples, okay, they're, they're up here, they're in the sky, and three of them are practical examples. So those are boots on the ground, this is how we live, okay? Theological, three of them, three of them practical. Alright, that's how we're going to go through this text. There's my outline, if you want it. First, th three theological examples, up in the sky. The first one is this, the cross was God's plan. The cross was God's Plan. Now, as I say that, it occurs to me that there isn't really any talk of the cross in this text. We don't have the death of Christ. We don't, we don't have any of this talk about the cross in this text. But what we do have is a shot about Judas. This is all about Judas Iscariot and the, and the act that, that he carried out, that he betrayed Jesus. And so I get to the cross by way of Judas saying that betrayal led straight to all of the things that we know happened to Jesus. Judas betrays him and our Christ is abandoned and he is flogged and he is spit upon and he is struck and he is stripped and he is mocked and he is mistreated and he is crucified. Because of what Judas chose to do. But as this community of believers looks at Judas and all that, that was accomplished through his act, listen to what they say. Verse 16 and 17. Peter stands up and says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit before, spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted allotted his share in this ministry. 
They look at this act of Judas and they say the scriptures had to be fulfilled. They didn't merely say, look at what Judas did. Wasn't Judas, we always knew he was sideways. We knew Judas would probably be somebody that would do something like that. It's really too bad that one of us had to... They looked at Judas, and remember, if, if you, you can go back and do this later today. Luke chapter 24, Jesus has an extended Old Testament Bible study with his disciples. And he teaches him in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think that's where they learned this. I think that's where they knew that, that this Judas thing that happened wasn't just some great mistake. This, this didn't throw off the entire plan of God. In some ways, this carried out the plan of God. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And the act of Judas was doing that very thing. This really isn't a new concept for them at this point. If, if they had been paying attention, if we'd been paying attention, we would have understood things like this. Listen to what Jesus says. This is all in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. This, this must happen. He must suffer this way. Luke 17, Jesus says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 24 uh, the angels say, He is not here, He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Later in the same chapter, He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The point you see in, in all of these portions of Scripture is, is that there is a divine or, or theological necessity to the things that were happening to Jesus. There's a divine necessity. This was the working out of a plan. This wasn't merely a sideways turn that caught, caught God off guard. This was something that was enveloped in His sovereign plan. He, he knew this was going to happen. This was, this was part of what He was doing. And it did not catch Him off guard. See, oftentimes, I, I think this troubles us to, to think that God somehow in His sovereignty foresaw these things, determined these things. When we do, we lose some of what we know and some of what we love. See, it was, it was God who sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. It was God who did that. It was God who, who made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. It was God who laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was, it was God who, who saw fit to crush him for our sins. It was God who showed his love for us in the fact that Christ died for his enemies. And all of this happened 
through the cross. All of this happened because he was delivered into the hands of sinful men. All of this happened because he was betrayed by this Judas. Now, if you remember the story, this is, this is one of the coolest things. I wrote this down this morning. If you remember the story, when Judas is about to betray Jesus, it says that someone entered into his life in a very special way. Do you remember? Who was it? Satan. The, the enemy of God who, who, who begins in Genesis chapter 3 enters into Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. In, in essence, this act of Judas was part of the plan of Satan. And this is what I love about all this because God's plan overrules the schemes of the enemy. Even, even the worst thing that he could do, crucifying the very Son of God, it isn't that this throws off the plans of God. God envelops these in his sovereignty so that he is more than a conqueror, so that we are more than conquerors in Christ. He overrules the schemes of the enemy to accomplish his purposes. I don't understand how that works. Okay, so if that's your question, you want to come up and ask me after the service, I have no clue how that works, but I praise God that it does. He overrules the schemes of the enemy to accomplish his purposes. That is a great and glorious thing. The cross was God's plan. It fulfilled scripture and this did not catch him off guard. That's the first thing. Second thing, second theological example. The apostles are vital. The apostles are vital. Verse 20. Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now this is a bit odd. The, the scriptures teach, by Peter's interpretation here, that the place of this betrayer needs to be filled. There needs to be another one to take his place. Now, there are many possibilities as to why. I mean, we could, we could start to think about this. I mean, maybe there was too much work for 11 of them. There's a lot of space we've got to cover. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It wouldn't hurt to have another guy, right? Um, maybe that was the case. Maybe they were very, very used to, uh, and they did this in the Gospels, they were used to going out in twos. And so now, I don't know, maybe James is alone. And he's like, well, can I come with you guys now? Nah, third wheel thing, you know? I don't know. Uh, maybe they were used to having accountability partners, and now one of them didn't have any. I'd, maybe, or... Or there, there's something bigger than this that's going on. Something more important. Maybe there's something unique about the 12 apostles. Maybe there's something unique about, about these 12 who, who were called and commissioned for a purpose. That they need to fill this place because there's something significant about these 12. Uh, one of the reasons I say this, this is just a bit of an aside, but, but later on there, there's no evidence that when other apostles, say, died, like James, who's killed, I think, in chapter 12, martyred for the faith, there, there's no attempt to continue filling in the spots of these 12. There was something unique about 
these first 12. And, and Judas is replaced not because he died, but because he defected. Jesus intended the witness of a faithful 12. And, and we see this through Scripture. There's an important part that these apostles play. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Second Peter, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Later in Acts, we'll see this. So they received his word and were baptized, and they were, they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So the apostles are, are vital in propagating the word of God and in putting forth this message of Christ. Now, to be sure, the, the other followers of Jesus were important as well. And we'll see this throughout the book of Acts, that they become witnesses as well to this gospel message. But there's something about these twelve, that they are authoritative and divinely sanctioned in their role. And they played an important role in delivering the interpretation and the application of the work of Christ. So much so that people are devoting themselves to listen to what they say. I think there's something more in this plan of God that has to do with this. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says to these apostles, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke 22, You are those who have stayed with Me in My trials, and I assign to you, as My Father has assigned to Me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I'm going to go to the book of Revelation. For those of you who don't know, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book which is highly poetic. So if this is odd to you, it, it probably should be and you can ask me about it later. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In Ephesians, Paul would say this as well. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. The apostles are, are the one 
the ones on whom this message of the gospel rides. It's this message of the gospel which they carried forth, which builds the people of God. This is, this is I think, how they can be called the foundation. Because they steward the message by which this, this great house of God, this great temple of God, which is the people of God, is built. There is something important about this. That these twelve had to constitute an authoritative, divinely sanctioned role in the church, and bigger than the church, in God's economy throughout time. The apostles were vital because they stewarded this message in a unique way. The third thing connects to this. Notice what their message is. Verse 20. It's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. A witness to his resurrection. This is the third thing. The resurrection is central. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central. They are going to be witnesses to the resurrection, which means the the message of Jesus raised from the dead is the content of their message. Now, that might throw you off a a bit. You say, well, what what about the death of Christ? What about the life of Christ? What about the words of Christ? Yes, all of that. What you're seeing here is not that they're preaching the resurrection in exclusion to those. They're preaching the resurrection as, as the chief of those. This is the crowning achievement in the work of Christ. This is what validates all the work of Christ. In other words, can I, can I really go out and preach about who Jesus was? He's, he's the divine son of God and listen to his authoritative teachings and look, he died for sin and, and he stayed in the tomb. And The resurrection enables all of the rest to be meaningful. It validates him as the son of God. It means we should listen to what he says. It means his death was stamped with God's approval and accepted. And he's victorious over sin on our behalf. The resurrection is the crowning achievement of the work of Christ. And so when they say, he will become with us a witness to the resurrection, they're encompassing all of what Christ did. Saying, we're preaching that message. You see this throughout the book of Acts. I'm just going to give you a few of these to show you how central the resurrection is. And I do this because often I think we miss this. We speak a lot about the death of Christ and and in some ways neglect the reality of the resurrection and, and its meaning for all the rest. Listen to this in the book of Acts. Right after the Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter preaches... Says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Chapter 3, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Chapter 4, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Chapter 10, Peter with Cornelius. And we are witnesses of all that he, Jesus, did 
both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who he had chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Chapter 13, Paul preaching at Poseidon, Poseidon Antioch. And we bring you good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That is interesting, isn't it? He has fulfilled the word about the Son of God through the resurrection. This is what Paul would later say, that, that he was declared with power. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection. The resurrection is theologically central. Acts chapter 17, Paul preaching at Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the assurance that this Jesus is who he said he was. And he will be the judge in the last day. And these are only a sample in the book of Acts. The point is this. The resurrection is central because the resurrection is the practical and theological ground for the message of the gospel. It is the practical and theological ground for the message of the gospel. Now let me step back for just a moment with you and talk about this idea of resurrection. This is a difficult one. Because, quite simply, people don't rise from the dead. Right? I've, I've been to funerals. I've done funerals. And what we do is we go and, and we put people in the ground. And we, we pray and we realize that that's reality. I've never been invited to the resurrection service at the cemetery. It doesn't happen. And so this is, this is difficult for people, and I, and I want to think well about this. Okay? I'm going to go back. If you're in your Bibles, go back to, to the third verse of chapter 1. We went over this quickly a couple weeks ago, but I want to draw some attention to it again. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive to them. Now, the way that Luke writes that, I think, is very strategic. It's very strategic. He could have said something different. He could have said something like, and people saw him over 40 days. That's not what he says. He uses very specific language that Jesus presented himself to them. Now, this idea, this wording actually of, of, of Jesus presenting himself is very specific. Presenting yourself has with it the idea that, that you're putting yourself forth for investigation. That in a sense you're, you're putting yourself on trial, we might say. In fact, there's one other place in, in the book of Acts where this word is used, this idea of, of presenting one's self. And it's actually used during Paul's trial. I think it's chapter 27. You can look at this later. But, but Paul is presented before Caesar. Well, why? What is going to happen? Well, Caesar is going to examine him. 
He's presented to be examined. And this is the idea with Jesus, that for 40 days, he presents himself to his disciples, to his followers, presents himself so that he can be examined, so that they can figure out, is this, is this really happening? He's presented himself. And, and this is the point, that he would be examined in such a way that they would see the proofs. The things which take away doubt in their minds. The things which eventually convince them this, this is really happening. He, he really has risen from the dead. This, this Jesus, after being crucified, was raised literally. Historically, he was raised actually from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would say, this is a great chapter on the resurrection. Here's what he would say. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. A couple of verses later, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is those who have died, they have perished. They have been lost eternally. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I heard a lecture a couple of years ago uh, in which the, the man who was preaching referenced a minister who was asked about the physical resurrection of Christ. And when the interviewer asked him about this, he, he asked it this way. He said, what would become of your faith if it was proved that Christ had not risen from the dead? If it was proved that Christ had not been raised from the dead, what would happen to your faith? And this was the minister's response. It wouldn't change a thing for Christ has risen in my heart. Now, if that just gave you a warm fuzzy and you said, yes, that's right. I want to gently say, not really. That is crazy. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is a joke. That's from Paul. To the point that he said, people should pity us. They should feel sorry for us. They should walk by us and tossle our hair like people do when they feel sorry for somebody and say, ah, it's too bad. Too bad you got taken by such a lie. The resurrection is central. Practically, it is central. Theologically, it is central. It grounds this entire message. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the proclamation of something that actually happened. That's why we call it good news. The gospel was something in, in, in ancient times that people would come and herald. They would be at the front of the battle. And they would say, there's good news. The battle is being won. They're reporting something that was happening. And this is still the sense of gospel. The gospel is good news. It's reporting something that happened. It, the gospel is not good advice. It's not good technique. It's not good therapy. It's not good spiritual, spirituality. It is good news. Jesus was raised. I'm going to take another 
step back here just, just for a moment. Because there's some of you who uh, very likely are not Christians here today, and so this is still ridiculous to you. I get that. There's some of you who have a very naturalistic um, philosophy and worldview, and I understand that. And let me give you some, some reasons that I think, historically, the resurrection is plausible and likely. The first one is this, and I'm going to run through these quickly. I, this is not to exhaust the subject. The first one is this. In the story, in the accounts of the story, the tomb was first found by women. You say, what does that have to do with anything? In the day that this was recorded, the testimony of women was not even acceptable in court. Which means if, if you're inventing a story about a man being raised from the dead, the very last thing you want to do is say that some women first found him. Unless, of course, it actually happened that way. Women found the tomb. Number two, it it would have been impossible to proclaim an empty tomb in the city where it resided. This is very shortly after the death and burial of Christ. And now we're, praying, we're claiming to these people in the same city, the tomb is empty. Is that, is that difficult to, to find out? Is that difficult to investigate? Number three, the, the earliest Jewish argument against the resurrection assumes that the tomb is empty. You can read this. I think this is at the end of Matthew's Gospel where the Jewish leaders, because the tomb really is empty, have to come up with something else. Well, his, his disciples came and they stole the body away. But see, what that does, that's a great story and we can deal with that on another day in another sermon. But the issue is they're admitting there's nothing in the tomb. They knew it and, and so did everyone else. Number four, the tomb of Jesus was not venerated as a shrine. It was not treated in a special way. Now, this was a practice that did happen. People did treat Jewish holy men and teachers as, as types of shrines, places that were set apart. And see, the stature or, or the holiness of the person would determine how that place was to be treated. But, but we see none of this. There's none of that happening with the tomb of Jesus precisely because there's no reason to. He's not there. Number five, there, there are multiple appearances of Christ recorded in Scripture. Multiple appearances of Christ. You saw this in the beginning of Acts. He appeared to them. He presented himself to them over a period of 40 days. There's many appearances. There's appearances to the women. There's appearances to the uh, apostles. There are appearances... Actually, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 10 verses, and Paul will denote many of these appearances. Here's what happened. He appeared to these people and he names them. Number six, there were mass appearances. What I mean by this is Christ appeared to large groups of people. It's one thing for for a guy to go in a closet and say, Jesus appeared to me, and he walks out and tells everybody, Jesus appeared to me, and then we have to go, "Are are you actually just nuts? That's a good question. It's a question you should ask of someone who says that. It's a question they should have asked. But on occasion, Jesus is appearing to large groups of people, massive groups of people. 
In fact, one recorded over 500 people at one time seeing the resurrected Christ. And you say, well, maybe, maybe these people were hallucinating. Listen, I wasn't really alive much in the 70s. I don't know how that goes down, but here's what I don't think happens. I don't think 500 people have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time. 500 people. At the time that that was reported, Paul says of those 500 people, they're still alive, most of them. Which is a shorthand way of saying, it's kind of a footnote, go ask people. Most of them are still around. Another reason is there's not enough time for legend to grow. There's not enough time for a story to grow all of a sudden that, that now we're going to, to propagate some legend about Christ because what we're saying about him is only a month or two old and people know what really did and did not happen. Number eight, and, and this is a big one for me as I think about this. Something has to explain how these men who were following Christ, who deserted him, and who were hiding out, all of the sudden are proclaiming under threat of their own lives that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. Something has to explain that change. Those are, those are just a few reasons. There are many, many, many more lines of thinking about the resurrection. Let me re- recommend... A guy to you, it's an author, if you want to pursue this more, his name's Dr. William Lane Craig. He's probably the authority uh, living right now on the resurrection of Jesus. He's written a lot of books about it. His name's William Lane Craig. You can study that stuff for yourself. For now, I want to bring you back to this reality. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is central. The apostles knew it. We need to know it. Okay, so those are, those are three theological realities. Okay? Up in the air. Th- these are things that they believed that were real to them, that, that drove them, that we should understand, that we should receive, that we should believe. Now I'm going to transition. I'm going to put boots on the ground and, and look at things in this community of faith, early followers of Christ, that are practical. As we do... Uh, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit on the whole book of Acts. I had somebody ask me about this. Um, I think it was Rick as we started doing this. And he said, here's, here's a good question uh, because people wrestle with this often. As we go through the book of Acts, do we approach this book as descriptive or prescriptive? Let me translate that. Is this simply Luke telling us what happened or is Luke telling us what should happen. So when we read the book of Acts, do we say, this is how they did it. This is how we should do it. A lot of people approach the, the book of Acts like that. They look at the early community of faith, and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks, how they prayed together, how they met together, how they shared what they had, and nobody had need because they really cared about each other. And we say, we should be like that. We should do what they did in the book of Acts. And then they come to, to places later in the book of Acts where, um, okay, like Paul in one city preaches all night long to the point that a man falls asleep and falls out the window from, I think, the second story. Preaches all night long. And I don't hear anybody saying we should do that. I mean, except for 
me on occasion, but nobody else is going, Kyle, could you preach for like seven more hours? Descriptive or prescriptive? So here's, here's I'm just going to tip my hand. Here's how I am going to walk through the book of Acts. I will default toward thinking that the things in the book of Acts are for a theological purpose and a practical example unless there's good reason to think otherwise. Okay? I'm going to default to thinking there's theological purpose and practical example. Now, it doesn't mean that every detail of what they're doing we should do. Okay? And, we, and we've got to have wisdom. This is going to be more of an art than a science. But that's how I'm going to default. Okay, so having said that, three practical examples that we see from this, and we'll go quickly on these. First one, they prayed. They prayed. And, and with devotion, they prayed. Look at verse 14 with me. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary, mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, this is simple, but it's also very profound that these people, the first thing that they understood to do was come together and pray. They understood that this should be fervent prayer, that this should be persistent prayer, that this should be God-exalting prayer. This should be prayer for the purposes of God. They knew this from the example of Jesus. They had spent years with Him. They had seen Him praying often. They had seen Him rising early in the morning to go out to a desolate place so He could pray. They, they, they knew that He spent all night at times in prayer. And as He leaves this community of His followers, they take up this practice of devoting themselves to prayer. I think that's key, by the way, this idea that they were devoting themselves. It, it could have said, and they prayed. But there's something specific here. They're devoting themselves to prayer. We see this in Acts chapter 2 as well. 3,000 get saved at the preaching of Peter, and they, these new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles', apostles teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. It's the identical language. There is a devotion here. It's not simple. It's, it's not easy. It, it actually takes effort. Devoting yourself to prayer means, means continuing in to, to persist in prayer. It means continuing in and persisting in, in prayer, putting forth great effort do you, do you ever think that you want to work at prayer, labor at prayer? See, that doesn't sound like very much fun, but this is what devotion is. We struggle through to pray because we believe that prayer is powerful because it accesses the power of God. It is us pleading with God. Prayer isn't in itself powerful. Prayer is powerful as it connects us to Almighty God. Amen? So we devote ourselves to prayer. We, we continue to persist in it, putting forth great effort despite possible ob obstacles. And there are obstacles to prayer. And, and honestly, here, I, I'm preaching as much to myself as to you. I'm calling myself to this. I constantly find obstacles in my life of prayer. They're simple obstacles. They're ridiculous obstacles, honestly. 
and they stand in the way of my devotion to prayer. Maybe you're there with me and maybe you need to see this example and, and accept this example that, that the early followers of Christ, before and after the coming of the Spirit, mind you, were devoting themselves to prayer. They needed the power of God. They prayed with devotion. That's number one. Number two, they let the Scriptures lead. They let the Scriptures lead. Verse 20. Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, that there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, verse 22, must become a witness with us to the resurrection. They let the scriptures lead. Now, the important connection to see here is in verse 21. At the beginning of verse 21, here's what you see. This little word, so. Uh, in the original Greek, what that does is that connects to what Peter just said. Peter looks back at scripture. He looks at uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm, I think, 108. And he looks at those scriptures and he reads those scriptures. And because of those scriptures, he says, so we have to replace him. Peter's looking at what Scripture says and he's letting Scripture guide what they're doing. Now, to be sure, we are not living out in our lives the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Okay? We're not going to be in the exact same place with the Word of God that Peter was. But we, we want badly to be guided by the Word of God the way he was. And honestly, as the book of Acts goes on, this isn't just in the fulfillment of Scripture, but the, the apostles are always looking back to Scripture, saying, this is what the Word says, and then this is what we'll do, and this is what we should be doing. They're reading Scripture and letting the Scriptures guide them and direct them. And honestly, this is where our lives should be. In the decisions that we make, in the things that we pursue, in the things that we value, in, in the things that capture our affections and our devotions, we need to be led by the Word of God. God has revealed Himself. He has revealed His will to us in the Bible. Do you know what the book says? Do you know what the book means? Do you know what the book calls you to? Do you know how to discern truth from error? as people use the Scriptures? Do you know how to apply the principles of Scripture to your life? Do you know how to apply the script, principles of Scripture to other people's lives who are in need of God's guidance, who are in need of God's voice, who are in need of God's care, who are in need of God's comfort and God's reassurance? Do you know how to use the Scriptures in that way? Do you know how to rely on the Scriptures in that way? This is a huge value for us. One of our core values at Indian Trail Church is this, that, that you as the people of this church would have a passion for the Word of God and an ability to rightly interpret and apply it to your life and the lives of others. Basically what I just said. That you'd have a passion for that. Like they had a passion for that. If you go back to Acts 2, again, they devoted themselves to prayer. They also devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the seed of what we would call the New Testament. They let the scriptures guide. Number three, end here. They trusted in God's sovereignty. They trusted in God's sovereignty. Verse 23. They put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas. He was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two 
you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now this may seem like one of the oddest pieces of this entire passage, and I totally understand that. To me, it's one of the greatest. Um, you say, really? Really? Throwing dice for an apostle, that's a good part to you? Yeah, it is. Um, by the way, uh, Jim, I, this is really how we decided to hire you. We have, we have big elder dice, and we all get to throw one. He's laughing, I hope. Um, you say, what was this about? Okay, realize who, who the apostles were. These are Jewish men with a background in the scriptures. And, and the reality is that casting lots was a biblical practice in the Old Testament. You say, this is getting really weird. I know. But read the Old Testament. They cast lots in certain situations to, di- to discern the will of God. They did this for, uh, let's see, the the allotment of, of portions in the promised land. They did this for the activities of pre, the priesthood and who would take what. This was an Old Testament practice. And you say, this is absolutely ridiculous. But you have to understand what undergirds their belief and their use of this practice of casting lots. It's in Proverbs chapter 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They understood that God was able to guide through this means. That if they came to the, to the end of themselves, and, and this is what I'll highlight here, these people are, are not just casting lots as their first inclination or, the, or their first response. Did you see what they did? They put t- forward two men. They had criteria and they measured these men by these criteria. And then they prayed about this, and then they recognize God's omniscience, that God knows the hearts of all men. And they knew that God was able, through the casting of lots, to choose. And this is interesting. He says, you show who you have chosen, Lord. That they're recognizing, we're going to pray, and we're going to do the best we can, and then you are going to show the person who you have chosen. This is huge. And they cast lots, I think, with the realization of Proverbs 16.33, that the lot is cast, but its decision is from the Lord. They trusted that God was able to guide in this way. Now, many scholars and commentators come to this practice, and they say, this, the only time we see this in the New Testament is before the coming of the Spirit. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, there is no more casting lots. And that is true. That is true. Now you see people being chosen based on qualifications that are laid out in the scripture. And yes, by the guidance and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. But I don't go to the place where I say this is wrong. Because I believe that these people trusted God. They were praying and they're saying, Lord, you chose us eleven. And you'll choose this twelfth who will replace Judas. God was sovereign and they trusted him in that. So the three on-the-ground principles that we see as we open up this diagram of the early church is this. They prayed with devotion, they let the scriptures lead them, and they trusted in God's sovereignty. Okay. We're going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come up. We'll take communion together. Um, over the next few minutes, I want to invite you to pray about those three things. Of those three things, 
What is God prodding you with? Your devotion to prayer, your, your interaction and guidance by the scriptures, or your trust in the sovereign hand of God to lead. Okay. So